The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. Ah, yeah, we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but believe me, tonight we're going to make it worth your while. As opposed to any other night. Every other night we just like <laughs> wing it, see what happens. No, thank you guys. Uh, we have a, a very special guest with us and uh, he's uh, kind enough to uh, call in tonight. So without further ado, tonight my guest is uh, Mr. Matt Sullivan, founder of uh, Light in the Attic Records. Matt, are you there with us? I'm here, I'm here. You guys <laughs> thank doing? you so much for being with us. I apologize for the, uh, for the late start here. No problem. I become really fascinated with this story of uh, Jim Sullivan. I know that you know you're head of this uh, record label uh, based out of Washington that uh, recently re-released this album titled UFO. And the story behind the album and the man, it's really fascinating. And I wanted to ask you, can you take us to the beginning? How did you hear about Jim Sullivan, his album and his uh, mysterious disappearance? Yeah, a few years back, I was on a, a website called Waxidermy. A, a music blog where people uh, it tends to focus on underground records, a lot of self-released albums, you know, called private press records. You know, meaning artists who you know usually paid for a record themselves or you know self-release it at least. And years later, a, a, a music collector finds it in a you know Goodwill somewhere mm -hmm. and uploads some audio onto Waxidermy and people there's a message board people chat about the records it's really fascinating and it's it's a great place to discover n music that's off the radar and everything from folk to heavy metal to you know every type of music in between a lot a lot of old music we're referring to like a, you know things from you know 60s 70s things even before that so i was on there one day just snooping around looking for records and um, came across uh, the jim sullivan record enjoyed looked like the like the uh, look of the cover and uh you know, a good album cover goes a long way. So I clicked, totally and started listening. There was the the record was out there, was, you know, kind of uh, MP3s. And uh, you know, the guy who found the record had kind of a little, you know, few paragraphs up. And I started listening to it, and it was immediately just, you know, mesmerizing. I, mean, I started Light in the Attic uh, about 12 years ago, over a reissue record label, primarily. And um, you know, we're always looking for records that are, you know, off the radar, just you know, things that we enjoy sometimes. Uh, really all types of music and this was kind of a, you know kind of a dream thing of, of hearing something like this and enjoying the music and then from there um, started kind of as I'm listening to the album for the first time scrolling down the page and by this time it's probably oh oh eight or oh nine maybe and um, it, you know the, the post had been up in oh six so I'm, I'm reading you know 50 posts or something that go over two years and halfway down the page you know people are primarily just saying the first time I'm hearing this loving it and halfway down the page um, Jim Sullivan's family posts. Uh, this is, you know, they, they, they're the first people who kind of have anything to do with Jim that are posting and they say how excited they are that, um, you know, he, his music's being heard and they kind of go into the story. So that was where I discovered that. But I mean, just to go back, the record is really just, I mean, it's such an incredible, I mean, that was my, you know, 
interested in it was the music. And I mean, the, the story is phenomenal. I mean, really, the music holds up. I mean, you know, it's been since 1969, right. in Los Angeles. And so, I mean, we're talking 45 years ago at this, you know, now in 2014. And just a phenomenal mix of, of folk and country music and psychedelic rock and, you know, great playing and, and, and songwriting and, and his lyrics and voice. I mean, it really is a, a weird mix of styles as well. I mean, it had Earl Palmer on drums, who heard on loads of hit songs. And um, it, it had kind of almost like a psychedelic soul vibe to it mixed with country music and it was uh something i hadn't heard or you know heard a lot and uh, you know something i really enjoyed from what we know about jim sullivan and it's thankfully through you taking the time to to research and investigate uh jim is that he was a quite popular singer out here in southern california uh, he would frequently play at a bar in malibu correct apparently he yeah. had he he had quite the buzz going at the time yeah, I mean, he, you know, he had a buzz within within some of the beach communities and some of these these kind of you know good little places to play. There was a place called the Raft out in Malibu, as you mentioned, and a place where like Lee Marvin and uh, Farrah Fawcett and all these you know kind of Hollywood stars would hang out. And again, this is this is late sixties, early seventies, and other places. But he never really he was just you know he was a struggling artist. He was trying to make it, and he had other things. You know, he had a little bit part in the film Easy Rider. So he had these kind of brushes with fame, you know, hung out with Harry Dean Stanton, you know, he had, he had kind of um, these moments, but, uh, you know, and playing at that, the raft was one of his key places. When he put out this record, UFO, it wasn't the success that I guess he expected. This was a, a self-finance effort. I mean, this is like indie before the term indie kind of existed, uh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it was financed by uh, two Texas uh, Al Dobbs and a friend of his uh, who came out to pretty much from Texas who came out to uh, L.A. in their words to discover the hippie life and uh, they ended up going to the raft as you know just fans and and uh, enjoyed Jim's playing and so they ended up having money and they ended up putting down the money to make the record. We ended up finding Al and uh, interviewed him a lot about the reissue and you know so they were the, they were the ones that you know really got the ball rolling in terms of a recording. Um, contract or recording, you know, arrangement. And then, you know, I mean, that's really when I was listening to the record and then found out that all these legendary players are on, I think that really threw me off is how did, you know, this private press self-released record end up with, you know, these, you know, heavyweight players who were getting paid, you know, good money. So, I mean, Al still had the receipts and I think they spent, I think it was about $17,000 and 69 on the record, wow. you know, considerable amount of money. Yeah. Um, I feel like it was something around there, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a few years, but um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, they had some legendary players, uh, commonly known as the as the Wrecking Crew, right? And they were Phil Spector's uh, go-to guys when it came to uh, session musicians. And I must say, Earl Palmer's drums are absolutely amazing on this record. It has kind of like Phenomenal. the old-school mix where uh, the whole drum kit is pan hard uh, right, I believe, in this recording. Yeah. Um, and you can really appreciate... The drumming, and from what I read, also you you did this excellent write up for the blog uh, Aquarium Drunkard, kind of oh, detailing yeah, this you. story. Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. And in it, you mentioned that uh, the bass player uh, Jimmy Bond. Jimmy Bond. Yeah, he did yeah. all the orchestration and the arrangements, which are, I mean, from a musician standpoint, it wasn't your typical folky type of music. Uh, they were being really experimental. It sounds like. Yeah, they were. I mean, it was, it was, I think, not at all what Jim had expected. You know, interviewing his family a lot and his friends that 
I think the record kind of went in a completely different direction. But I think at the time, I mean, that was kind of, you know, more of the, the time where you'd have a singer-songwriter and, you know, you hook up with a really good arranger and, you know, production and a good studio and things kind of went in more of a, you know, tripped out way in, in a way. But I guess as you were t- kind of mentioned earlier, just the mixing of styles where, you know, you have Earl Palmer, you know, I mean, David Axrod and all those classic records. And you mentioned The Wrecking Crew. I mean, just... You know, Don Randy was on keyboards, you know, I mean, he's on, you know, I mean, I mean, these guys, Jimmy Bond, for example, I mean, he's mm-hmm. on everything, I think, from Nina Simone's first recordings of Chet Baker to, um, I think he's on Beach Boys Pet Sounds, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Um, I mean, these guys are just like, you know, heavyweights. Um, but there, there was something kind of, the, the, it kind of added a lot of like the strings, definitely Jimmy Bond's arrangements and also the bass players you mentioned had kind of this eerie quality yeah. to him, which, really uh it has kind of a melancholy vibe over the whole record and with jim's lyrics and kind of what he's talking about yeah. or singing about it, it brings it up to a whole nother level um so you know i think jim was probably hoping just to like make a singer songwriter record him and a guitar you know or him in a three-piece or something but i think it's it's pretty unique where the songwriting really comes out and the production doesn't kill the songwriting and right sometimes i don't feel like it's an overproduced record at all and I believe, uh, from what I was reading, that there was another release of this album, I believe. Was it Mooney? The first one was on Monty Records. Okay. And then this is one thing that really threw me off, and we still haven't got a lot of... It's been years and still haven't got a lot of explanation of this, but that record came out in about August 69. It was Catalog 003, 0003, Monty Records, and then it was, it was uh, called UFO. The artist's name was Jim Sullivan. And then about six months or so later... Somewhere in there, we think March 1970 is what I've been told. Um, the record was re-released on a label that was a little bigger, like it was a real record label called Century City. I mean, mm-hmm. they had a few releases, and it was they changed the name. Uh, they called it, it was a self-titled album, and then the track order I believe was altered a little. The cover was was totally different. It was a big kind of close-up of Jim's face, a big gatefold cover, um, and and then more, most importantly, is the mix was totally yeah. different. The Monty mix was. As you mentioned, Earl Palmer's drums, the bass, you know, some of those elements were way up in the mix, almost like a David Axelrod record as mentioned earlier. And in the Century City record, the mix is, uh, the, the bass and, you know, those key players is way down and Jim's vocals are way up and it became more of a, it sounds more like a singer-songwriter record, um, which was really interesting. And I think, you know, we, we've interviewed the Century City people, and a lot of people, and it's hilarious. The Century City people don't remember the UFO record. Really? And a lot of the UFO people behind <clears throat> the UFO record don't totally remember the other record. I mean, they both just disappeared before they were even... I mean, the UFO album, uh, I don't think it was ever even shrink-wrapped. I think it was used as a demo. I mean, the original oh, wow. cover has a picture of Jim, which is the original cover we went with. Original picture of a small little photo of Jim, kind of like a psychedelic looking thing, and no text, nothing on the cover. The spine had no text. There was not a copyright logo. There wasn't a year. There wasn't a track list zero. Just it's just baby blue, just it. And then they pull out the record, and the label just had, you know, the song titles and I think Monty. So Century City one was a real was a real release, but um, you know, it was it, it's one thing that really threw us off, um, and. Uh, you know, it's one of the many questions we still have about the project. And we, you know, we spent a lot of time with Chip's family and they've helped uncover some clues, but you know, his whole life, at least in that point, had a lot of um, mysterious things happening. Why don't you tell me what your thoughts were when you heard Jerome, the uh, title or the opening track, I should say, 
off of his uh, uh, release, UFO. Like you said earlier, you didn't know all about his story. You just heard the music and you felt quite uh, attracted to it, as it were. Uh, why don't you tell me what were your thoughts when you first heard Jerome? Yeah, it's just, it's just, I mean, when I first heard it, I didn't know what it was really about. It's about uh, Jerome, Arizona, the mining town. I think it's up north, kind of the Flagstaff area, I believe, somewhere up there. We we meant to drive through on our way to New Mexico when we were researching about Jim's last known whereabouts. We did not get there, but Jim had a sister who was born in Jerome. That was what the song was about, and just about oh, you know, wow. a lot of the lyrics on UFO, the album, or uh, the desert and disappearing, death, and quite a few other subjects. But, you know, what really struck me when first hearing the Jerome tune was just, you know, talked about a little earlier, just the, the, the playing, his voice, melancholy, kind of, just a cinematic vibe to the whole record that really starts there, and just, it slowly works its way through. And it's just one of those kind of things you just, you can't really put your put your finger on her. So you yeah. just keep listening to it and listening to it and staring at that album cover and wondering, you know, what the hell is going on? What's it about? When uh, this record came out, obviously it didn't get the uh, commercial success that I guess Jim and people in his uh, team was expecting. And a few years right. later, I believe 1975, he uh, decided to head to uh, Nashville, correct, Tennessee? Yeah, correct. He had a... He had a um family who was out there being doing session work and mm -hmm. i think he just felt that he wasn't making it in la and he had a better right. shot of making it national because he was you know his music was a little more country-esque it was a little more had, had more of a country vibe and it was just better you know he had a better chance as a what he was doing maybe to probably be a songwriter um it just didn't uh it didn't pan out it was in this trip where things took a, an unexpected turn uh from what we know and, and the information that you've gathered he left on uh, March 4th for Nashville from L.A. That night, uh, he was uh, pulled over by a, a state trooper, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and yep. apparently he was driving, you know, uh, he was not driving properly. And uh, the well, he'd, been dri he'd been driving 15 hours straight. So he was exhausted. Um, he'd been driving straight from L.A. in his little VW bug by himself. Mm -hmm. The state trooper uh, let him go and he checked into a, a motel in uh, New Mexico, correct? Yeah, he was in Santa Rosa, which is a little town about two hours um, between Albuquerque and uh, West Texas on the on Route 66, the classic little old timey you know highway. Yeah. Um, Two thousand people, same population. Um, so yeah, they actually the police officer thought he was drunk, so they took him to the police station for a sobriety test, um, and then they told him to check into the uh, local motel and get some rest because I think you know, he was. He's trying to get to Nashville as quick as he could. We know that he checked in, and uh, the next day, it seems like he headed out to continue his, his drive, and that is pretty much the last thing we know of Jim Sullivan, right? And this is where I said the mystery kind of begins, because, and talk about disappearing in the desert, like, he sings, I don't know if this is one of those self-fulfilling prophecies or... Was it a premonition that he had? I mean, I don't know, but he leaves the motel. A few hours later, they find his car, and I wasn't quite sure if it was found on the side of the road, in the middle of the road, but all his belongings were still in the car. Yeah, it was found. Um, the car was found 26 miles outside this little teeny town called Santa Rosa. Uh, I mean, this is a really tiny town. When we went out there in 2010, 
um, to get to where his car disappeared. We drove about 20 minutes on a dirt road, um, probably saw maybe there are two houses and saw maybe one car. Wow. And I mean, it, it's, it's very remote. So when his car was found, it was abandoned. The car was dead. The battery was dead. And it was in the middle of the road. A bunch of locals who were working out, you know, would pass through, pass by that way, doing, you know, work out in the desert yeah. at the time that we interviewed 2010. They confirmed that. Um, and then also the police reports, um, or at least the missing person reports talked about, you know, the, the car being dead when it's found. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, uh, his wallet was in the car, his mm-hmm. keys were in the car, most of his belongings, um, some of his LPs were in the car, some tapes. Um, and then he also, um, I believe his guitar was either in the car or the hotel room, I can't recall, but he had a couple of things that were in the hotel room as well. The hotel room bed seemed like, according to what everyone said, that it looked like it was never really slept in. Um, but by the time his car was found, I think it was the next day. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a ways out there. So, I mean, the theory is, is he, you know, checks in the motel, gets his sleep, um, or hangs out there, does whatever, and, and you know, bought a bottle of, of vodka, and he drove around, and somehow he ended up out there, I think, just probably cruised around. I think, I think realistically, the locals probably gave him a lot of hell for being, you know, looking kind of like a hell's angel in a hippie with long hair mm-hmm. with a jacket. Right. Being 1975, like, remote New Mexico, and, you know, it's possible that would probably happen today as well. But I mean, this, you know, it's talk about premonition. I mean, you know, he was an easy writer in the film. And I mean, what that movie, I mean, a similar, right. You know, long haired hippies end up in small town America and they get murdered. I mean, it's just kind of a, you know, I mean, it's a different time then yeah. uh, not to say it's perfect for now, but, um, you know, you know I, I think that's a possibility, but I, I don't, maybe we'll wait a second to talk about that. Um, but yeah, when his car was found, uh, you know, it was out there in the middle of nowhere and, and, the strange thing is there was different stories we heard and no one could really clarify them. His car was found next to this ranch owned by the Genetis, who were mm-hmm. a, a local family who lived out there. And uh, the Genetis, um, th- there's one story that said he walked, Jim walked up to the door of their house. And again, this is in the middle of absolutely nowhere. There probably wasn't a house within, I'm guessing, a mile or two of the Genetis at the time, but I could be wrong, but, you know, pretty remote. Knocks on the door and Miss Janetti comes out, only speaks Italian. Jim probably asking for help for his car, as my guess, because it's not working. You know, that they don't understand each other and he takes off. Another story said that it was so flat out there, she saw his headlights from a distance and came down with a ranch hand in her car and asked mm-hmm. help. And it kind of says, in a, you know, as a smart ass, like, you know, you know, no, do you need help or something? And, mm. and that's kind of the end of it. You know, the Genetis had rumors tied to the, the mob, which no one could really confirm, but like a bunch of locals literally believe that. And we weren't ever interviewed the Genetis. They supposedly moved within like a year or so of Jim's mm. parents. Um, you know, I mean, it's a small town and, you know, rumors happen. We went out there though, and, and I mean, we met a lot of locals. I and mean, one thing that's really interesting is the local newspaper. Uh, the Guadalupe County Communicator, this great little newspaper, literally has a circulation of thousand. It's a weekly newspaper, the only newspaper in the area, and uh, it's pretty cool to have a circulation of two thousand. There's twenty seven hundred people that live there. Um, everybody reads the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, uh, you know, Davey Delgado, who was one of literally three employees at the newspaper in 2010, um, he was a kid then, or a teenager, and he remembered, he was probably about 16, 17 at the time in high school, and he remembered everything. He took us all around town, introduced a lot of locals, um, so he was kind of, he helped out with a lot of our, the research at the time okay. we were doing, uh, so much stuff we had was just kind of hearsay. Um, but Davey took us around to the local newspaper archive, which was great. I think at the time it was the Santa Rosa News, I believe it was called, um, in 1975. And there was this big binders in the back room of this little office um, of all the newspapers from 19, like, 20 or 30 up until time went under. So we flipped to March 75, and we start finding a lot of old articles um, about the disappearance. And, you know, the fascinating thing I, you know, I didn't realize, but it was, you know, two years of search parties all across New Mexico trying to find Jim uh, and his whereabouts. One article in particular, I'll never forget, was the first, I think the first article we found, a uh, man found in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and it matched his, you know, height, weight, you know, look. And so people thought maybe it was Jim. And we flip a few more pages, you know, a few more weeks down or a few more days down. And then it says that, you know, the local sheriff, Santa Rosa sheriff, went out to Las Cruces, you know, looked at the body and it, it had similarities, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't Jim. Um, and I mean, we were flipping through. I remember even getting to 77 and there was a full on statewide search um, involving all the state troopers and everything and still nothing. Um, they didn't find a thing. This is a bit mind-boggling uh because here we have a, a a talented musician you know down on his luck leaves his family behind to go to nashville disappears and all we're left is this record that just it becomes really eerie when you know this information and you listen to a record where he's singing about practically word for word what happened to him you know he drives out to the desert and disappears and there's a melancholy in his voice. There's a bit of despair. And his weather voice just conveys such emotion when he sings. I mean, you listen to, to Highways and uh, even UFO. And I think that's where the speculation comes that some people believe. And I think a lot of people would want to believe that, as fantastic as it sounds, that Jim's dream came true. I was going to say, you're totally right. I mean, it's it sounds crazy, uh, especially for people who haven't heard the record. Um, but a lot of, a lot of what he's singing about, you know, it is a strange premonition and, and the record's five, six years before its appearance. So it is a little, a little, and he did, you know, he did release other music. Yeah. Didn't um, he release one which, under which, the Playboy label I was reading in your yeah, write up? Yeah. Playboy, you know, magazine had a, pretty cool label in the seventies called Playboy and he had a record on, on Playboy. It was self-titled. It was about 72 or so. Um, so still, we're still talking a few years before the, the disappearance, but he was down on his luck and there are a lot of, there are a lot of possibilities. He might've been murdered. He, you know, there's the UFO thing. There's, yeah. Uh, could still be alive. I mean, he could have just, you know, he might've on the other hand walked out in the desert and said, you know, I'm not making it. My life is, I'm in the pits. My life's not going anywhere. I'm just going to, you know, walk out in the desert and die. I mean, I, you know, personally, I think 70s 
sadly, you know, he was probably murdered by, you know, the locals. You know, probably made someone mad there, or they didn't like him, or didn't like his long hair or something, and they exchanged some words, and and that was it. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, his his wife, she's wonderful, and she, you know, feels that, I mean, she, you know, she obviously likes the idea that, oh, for UFOs, God, yeah. it's a happier ending. Right, than yeah. murdered, but, um, you know, it's, it's a strange, uh, a really strange tale that, you know, we were, I mean, I, it's funny, you know, when I went out there with New Mexico, I went out there with two filmmakers, Jennifer Moss and Mel Eslin, and we kind of, being naive, just, it's funny thinking about it now, but we, we really thought, like, maybe we'll uncover something out there, <laughs> you know, uh, or something like that, and, and I, I feel like more could be uncovered if, if there really was, you know, you have the opportunity to maybe stay in New Mexico for a few months. I think there's a I think there are some more stones to, you know, uh, look under. It's funny because, uh, you know, reading this, uh, uh, you know, the you wrote this uh, story, as I mentioned earlier, you said that I believe it was his, his uh, room. The number was 0003, right? Which was the catalog number for his album. And you felt that well, that was kind uh, of like a, a sign of some sort. Yeah, there were a lot of weird signs when we were doing the reissue. The room is actually Jimmy Bond's house in L.A., producer, ranker, bassist, uh, his a party living apartment building and I went there to try to find him which took me ages to find this guy which shouldn't have been but it did and um yeah so his his unit number on his apartment building just this specific unit was 0003 and it just was like I don't know one of these just tripped up things of like same catalog number and it you know would have been it was like a four unit apartment building like why are three zeros and a three and right I'm just like you know dorky record nerd like these things are just like blowing my mind. And then also the apartment building itself, the, the, the complex was 370, which was, you know, the month and year that the Century City album came out. You know, yeah, strange coincidence. But when you do these kind of projects or anything in life, sometimes you, you see enough of those things and think, does that, does that mean something? Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Something? I, yeah. So it's always kind of weird and eerie. And there were, there were a lot of those types of things um, during the project. I mean, just kind of funny that, when I started listening to the album, I liked the cover and then clicked and started listening to it and then soon see like, oh, the guy's name's Jim Sullivan. My last name's Sullivan. Right. And like there's no, no relation, right? Obviously. No, no relation. Okay. Obviously not the most unique uh, name, but, uh, you know, just, just weird things like that. Mm -hmm. that. You know, I don't know what they all mean, but, you know, there's definitely been a, a bunch of strange things, you know, parallels with this, this project that make me think that, I'm, I'm drawn to it for some reason. I, I don't know. I mean, for me, you know, we put out maybe 150 records in 12 years, 98% of them are reissues and every one of them I'm a huge fan of and love. But there's something about this album that is just, uh, the music. I mean, just, just really, uh, never leaves me. I mean, it's just such a magical record. And I also want to let people know that, like you mentioned earlier, you uh, went down to New Mexico with uh, filmmaker Jennifer Moss, and you guys made this this short documentary, if you will, uh, yeah. a little over five minutes long. And you kind of uh, summarized the uh, the the story of Jim Solomon's disappearance in this documentary. It's, it's great. It's, it's it's I love the way you guys shot it, and you uh, show um, Jim's wife and his son. And uh, uh, we get to kind of see with our own eyes some of these places and some of the people involved. When you were talking to um, his wife, 
I don't know if this came up in the conversation, but do you know if uh, what Jim's beliefs were as far as like UFOs and aliens? I know at the time it was the whole hippie movement, you know, LSD, Tim Leary, you know, turn on, tune in and drop out. A lot of people were kind of uh, flirting with the idea of there being more to life. Do you know if uh, if Jim was just one more hippie in the crowd, if you will? No, I mean, I, I, I've talked to Barbara's wife about that a lot. Um, I mean, she she really was, she wanted to clarify she wasn't some, like, crazy alien obsessive person, nor was Jim. But, you know, they definitely believe that, you know, or were spiritual people and, and uh -huh. believe that, you know, they, they were open to ideas. And, uh, you know, they, they had an open mind. Um, you know, they mentioned, I remember her mentioning she was, uh, her and Jim would, um, sometimes sit on the beach and look up at the stars and wonder, you know, what's out there. Talked about sometimes she was, they were into um, the work of Edward Casey. Yeah. One of the first uh, kind of known um, psychics of the 20th mm -hmm. century or one at least that really pushed that, uh, those theories. I think he was like, died in the 40s, I believe. So, I mean, this is pretty early on. I mean, she mentioned she was, you know, both of them were big into, you know, his work and writings and all his philosophies. But, um, the record's called UFO, so obviously yeah. there's, there's a, you know, you can look at it any way you want with with that, but, um, you know, I think that's a fair assumption to, to feel that they, you know, they had interest in, in that there were other, that there were questions out there. Yeah. Course, you know, not going to answer. If people haven't checked this record out, definitely do. From the cover to the music, it's definitely... Uh, a fascinating uh, work of art. Uh, I love it from beginning to end, and I want to thank you for uh, bringing this record to everybody because I feel that otherwise, you know, this record would have gone unnoticed. Thank you. I mean, thanks to the guys also at, you know, Lafferty for turning us on the record. and Absolutely. Everybody who helped out on the reissue, Andrea Lyle and, and Jim's family, of course. And it's really been like, it's been a surreal journey, and it's far from over. I mean, we, we just saw Jim's uh, son and his uh, his son's wife um, last weekend, and you know, uh, you know, they've, they've become really close with with our family, and you know, I really want to continue releasing Jim's music and kind of shining a light on his work, and, and I think he was really on to some great work, and you know, would have been interesting to see what he would have done next, but you know, there is uh, fortunately he has music there that you know will live on. Before I let you go, why don't you tell us a little bit about Light in the Attic Records? Yeah, we're we're uh, we're based in uh, Seattle and Los Angeles, and um, we've been around for since 2002 and put out records, a lot of reissues, things from Serge Gainsbourg to Betty Davis, Kent Dalton to Chris Christopherson's demos, um, more obscure artists like Jim Sullivan, Donnie Joe Emerson. Um, a lot of soul, soul records to country to psychedelic rock and early hip hop. And for nice. us, it's just thank you. The archival process of, of, you know, records like Jim's that are just, you know, never really got their due is, you know, it's really, we feel it's important. And, you know, especially when these artists or their families or people that played on them are here to share and, and kind of tell these stories while they can be archived. And, you know, some stuff we've done is, and a bit more, you know, like Search Games, really Hazelwood, obviously artists that, you know, did find some success within their financial success within their lifetime. Mm -hmm. While other artists like Donnie Joe Emerson or, or Jim Sullivan, you know, you know, hadn't. So, you know, they're finding a new audience now. And for us, that's just, 
it's, it's important. So we do, you know, CD and vinyl and, and iTunes on, on uh, our titles and, you know, put a lot of emphasis on liner notes and photos and, like I said, the archival process. And you can find us on just on the web, lightneyattic.net, and, um, you know, records and Amoeba and all the, you know, record stores around the globe. And, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate you listening. And I should mention the Jim Sullivan doc, if people want to watch it, the short, it's on YouTube. You know, I think if you search... Uh, Jim Sullivan story. I yeah. think it comes up. Yeah, we. I, um, I believe me. I've been posting that video quite a bit because <laughs> I think it's, it's fascinating. Trust me. And if you will excuse me while I geek out for a minute, I also found that you guys are the ones that uh, reissued the Rodriguez records, right? From the the way I was introduced to Rodriguez yeah. was watching um, Searching for Sugar Man. Well, I think flew under everybody's radar. What fascinates me, and, and you know, when we go to break here, uh, I want to play one of uh, Rodriguez's uh, tracks, the one titled Sugar Man, because there's a very interesting musical interlude in uh, Sugar Man where there's this, this crazy panning going on. You know, you have the vocal on one side and the reverb on the other, and it creates this amazing effect. Um, so I want to thank you for, for releasing those yeah. records. I mean, they're, they're fascinating. Uh, I love, uh, oh, I'm falling in love you. with Rodriguez as well. I mean, if anybody thank hasn't listened to that. That cold fact and coming from reality, those two albums, I mean, there's just, I just, I feel honored to be involved with the records. We, we reissued them in 2008 and then 2009, the second one. And yeah, so we've been involved with his records and the Sugar, Sugar Man soundtrack. And it, yeah, it's been phenomenal to watch kind of growth and people find those albums but i mean cold facts definitely and the jim sullivan record i'd say are two or three of the records we've ever released that are like all flavor so on it's like if you don't like this you're just an <laughs> right oh, sorry sorry I just, like, no it's like, true kids who are like 15 to like people who are 75 like everyone can listen to those and be like god these are really special records you know i i see i can see things are catalog that maybe aren't for everybody but i mean there's those things are just such special works of art it's like how could you not enjoy those and it's nothing to do with me it's like those are just beautiful works of art that like need to be shared and so it's nice to see people you know latching you onto those records and finding them in unique ways and Malik Benjaloo who made the search for Sugar Man film I mean God he did such an incredible job and has really helped you know I mean that film came out a few years after our reissues and he's really helped Rodriguez's music reach even another you know audience out there so I'm happy you dug the film and and then into the music thank you no, thank you, really. What you're doing is totally amazing. It's one of the best jobs in the world, I must say, being able to uh, discover this music that has been long forgotten and bringing it to people and allowing us to rediscover it and enjoy it and help it live on. I mean, it would be a tragedy if these things were lost to, uh, to time. So I want to thank you, yeah. Matt, for what you do and for calling into the show tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having the support and thanks for everyone listening. So there you have it, folks. Matt Sullivan from uh, Light in the Attic Records. Thank you guys for watching. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. Enjoy your Cinco de Mayo. Don't drink and drive, please. We want to see you back next weekend. This is uh, Rodriguez, Crucify Your Mind. Enjoy. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.